This is One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. One in 59 is a weekly show devoted to topics related to autism spectrum disorder. Good morning and welcome to One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, Chief Development Officer at Anderson Center for Autism. And this morning, I'm speaking with Joe McCleary, the Academic Director at the Kinney Center for Autism Education and Support. And Joe, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for being on the show. I would love it if you could just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and the Kinney Center, and then we'll get into some conversation about, you know, what you're doing over there and and why our listeners should definitely be paying attention. Sure. Yeah. So I am a researcher, and I have been studying individuals with autism for about 20 years now, looking at clinical interventions and also looking at brain basis and development of uh, social skills and communication difficulties in children and uh, adolescents and adults with autism. Uh, I recently arrived at the Kinney Center, which is at St. Joseph's University. What drew me to the Kinney Center was they're really uh, the combination of a great set of clinical uh, service programs and uh, a large number of students who are actively engaged with our center. And so our center um, serves uh, approximately 800 families per year. We have a lot of repeat uh, families, but individuals and families affected by autism each year. And the service is provided um, by the St. Joseph's University undergraduate students who are strongly committed to service to this community. Can I just just interrupt you for a second just for clarity? So when you're talking about the 800 families that come through annually through the Kinney Center um, and the large number of students that are engaged, you're talking about students from the local communities. These are not students from the college, correct? Ah, that's a very good question. (laughs) Uh, If I can explain, yeah. So uh, some of these individuals are actually students at our college, um, but I was, yes, I was referring to clinical service programs. So let me describe them so you can have a better understanding of of what I mean by clinical service. So we have Camp Kinney, uh, which is a recreational camp, but also involves teaching uh, specific skills and managing challenging behaviors Mm -hmm. uh, using applied behavior analytic approach. Okay. and so um, we, you know, we have some learners there who are students in schools, and the schools um, pay for their summer camp experience so they can learn over the summer in our camp. And then others' families don't necessarily somewhere that they can send their child on the spectrum, and we get uh, children on the spectrum uh, very happily into our, our camp. That's what the focus is, although we do also have uh, a set of typically developing kids there as well to serve as peers that they can interact with and have fun with, uh, including my own children. And then we um, we also have very popular sports and recreation programs. So every year we have a wait list, unfortunately. We'd love to expand it. But we have eight weeks of uh, weekend, uh, usually Saturday, programming uh, for various different kinds of sport activities, uh, including basketball and swimming and karate and, and other sports. Um, so there's a, a large number of uh, learners who participate in those. Um, we have social skills programming in the evenings for children as young as two and um, and then even through to young adults uh, who are, are a part of our um, other programming. For example, we have day programming uh, where we basically prepare uh, young adults with autism uh, to live as independently as possible, um, attain the highest job uh, they can uh, potentially uh, gain after they leave our center uh, and learn uh, adaptive functioning skills, how to take care of themselves. We have a kitchen. 
and uh, laundry uh, that we teach them to use independently and Ooh. so on and so forth. All right. right. Well, thank you for that clarification because that now I can understand why you, as a 20-year-in researcher in this field, would be very drawn because you've got a huge variety of programming going on. You've got a range of ages. Um, and, and I'm picking up on the fact that a lot of the things that, that you're teaching there and opportunities kind of coincide with some of what we do at Anderson in a residential facility, but you're able to do them in, in a setting where families can bring their child for, you know, a Saturday, for maybe a camp session, for an evening, but you're focused on those sort of independent ADL, what we call ADLs, activities of daily living kind of skills. So thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so we use uh, primarily broad-spectrum applied behavior analyst yeah. analytics a model uh, and teaching uh, daily adaptive skills, absolutely. Okay. Um, but we also have specific programs, uh, for example, teaching social skills. But again, it's more an applied setting, a small group setting, and, and so on and so forth. And you've mentioned undergraduate students. St. Joseph's University also has a very successful program for supporting undergraduate students. Mm. Um, we take students who've already been admitted to the university based on their own sort of credentials through the regular process. But we offer to them, uh, we advertise to, to the, uh, the camp at the individuals who are accepted, that they can apply to be in what we call our Aspire program. And our Aspire program involves pretty comprehensive, um, uh, still relatively light touch, but a relatively comprehensive capacity for support uh, in an ongoing manner for these individuals who are, you know, intellectually capable and academically capable, um, but obviously being on the spectrum um, are going to struggle with adaptive skills and social engagements with their peers. And this really usually, uh, outside of St. Joseph's, or at least out, uh, you know, outside of our SPIRE program, usually leads to very high dropout rates. The estimates uh, for the rest of universities somewhere around 15 to 20 percent of dropout of people who do not get through and finish college in four to six years. We have about the flip of that. We have about an 85 percent success rate in getting our Aspire students with autism through St. Joseph's University um, at the same standards as any other student. So that actually about, that approximately maps our uh, typical or general population of students in terms of the success rate, 85 percent uh, in four to six years uh, they complete. And so we're really um, excited and happy and, and proud of this. And um, this program involves uh, weekly meetings with a social worker who's assigned to the case, uh, just checking in, making sure they're planning appropriately, uh, dealing with any issues that come up uh, in terms of, you know, their workload and how they're managing it and their homework and their preparation for exams. Um, again, these individuals are academically capable, but with the uh, adaptive and executive functioning uh, difficulties associated with autism, sometimes they need that kind of help. If they need a direct actual uh, academic support, we will refer them to our academic support office that's not in our center, uh, the general academic support office for other uh, for all students. Um, they also have a peer mentor who is an undergraduate student at St. Joseph's University who is usually in a similar major, so they can overlap in some of their classes. And they have uh, regular get-togethers, social outings, uh, either just by themselves, if they'd like, or with others, uh, with other friends. Um, and so that they have a social network that develops as they're in our university, again, to help support them to get through uh, and, and graduate and be successful academically. Mm. So uh, when we talk with other programs that have autism support, their success rates 
tend to be, if, if they have an autism support program that, that has a decent level of intensity, it still tends to be about 30 to 40 percent. So we're trying to look toward how do we disseminate this and, and help other universities uh, to be able to have this success rate that we've had. And uh, just last thing I'd like to say is that part of this is the inclusive environment that we have at St. Joseph's University. There's a lot of understanding of diversity, specifically uh, you know, uh, autism and associated mental health uh, difficulties, diversity. And we have uh, about 120 to 160 undergraduate students from various departments in our center every year providing the services for these uh, approximately 800 families. Mm. And these students are from interdisciplinary health services, education, psychology, and other departments. Again, lots of information. I'm going to follow up on a couple of points, but that that was actually going to be my first question is why do you think you're more successful at St. Joseph's than maybe some other universities? Because I know that this is a trend that a lot of universities are starting to recognize that uh, that it's not often. Well, sometimes, you know, students do drop out because of academic challenges. But a lot of times I think it is those other social um, you know, maybe sort of anxiety, mental health reasons, and, you know, just not necessarily knowing where to go for support and also missing out on the social component, which for so many students entering college, that's a huge, that's a huge thing. Everybody's talking about it and it's kind of an expectation that your social life is going to quote unquote explode. And then if it's just still as hard as it was in high school, it can be kind of a downer. So, so you've got an inclusive community already in place and and there's a lot of diversity you said from the different departments and different schools Uh, my next question since you sort of answered that one already is your success rate is high in terms of having students finish school and, and graduate do you have any information or is any of your research related work focused on following those students to see how they then do maybe in obtaining and maintaining a job or getting into a certain field or career path or, um, you know, the, the continuation of a, of a healthy quality of life in whatever way you might be measuring that after they've graduated? Or does everything that you're focused on right now sort of start and end on the campus of, of the school? Excellent question. Um, one thing I want to clarify is that I think there's an additional part, which is having the social workers involved. They really are um, very well uh, capable of supporting these co-occurring conditions. So, you know, you're asking about or talking about, how, you know, why individuals with autism uh, don't make it through university at the level that you expect based on their academics. And I think we have, there's a lot of research suggesting that it's related to things like co-occurring ADHD, co-occurring depression, co-occurring mm-hmm. anxiety, mm-hmm. which are onsetting in this period. It's happening for everyone, but it's happening at higher rates for individuals on the spectrum. And so this impacts on their, you know, their mood, but also their, their mood and their, and their adaptive abilities uh, and regular contact with these social workers who have that expertise to manage these, uh, you know, to help support uh, these other issues, I think is really key to this. Um, All right. Well, look, but, then I'm going to stop you. We're going to come back to the other question when we come back from a break, yeah. because you can't talk about a social worker without me saying that, yes, I am a social worker as well. That's my educational <laughs> background. So since you brought it up, let's do a big shout out to the social workers who, um, you know, part of our training actually is specifically about being able to sort of flex and really see where the, each individual person is coming from. And while there are a lot of people on the team always in any sort of multidisciplinary approach, I'm, I'm never going to miss an opportunity to, be, to do a shout out to the social workers who are uh, 
working with everyone else um, and the individual students to help them see. And, and I think it's an important point. A lot of people who are on the autism spectrum can sometimes get sort of pigeonholed or, or, or maybe told by someone or the, uh, there's an expectation that everything that they're struggling with now is because of autism. And what often gets overlooked is that we're talking about individual people who have a huge range of emotion and things that we're facing and dealing with on a daily basis and a bigger picture and a background and a family history. And so it's good to know that there's somebody who's looking to say, look, yes, you're on the spectrum, but there's also this happening or you might be experiencing some signs and symptoms of this and there are ways to manage and talk about that. So I love that you're seeing that kind of success and that you think that 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 aspect is is a part of it. We have to take a quick break. We're going to come back and then we're going to go back to that other question I asked first. Uh, This is One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and we'll be right back. You've just received the diagnosis. Your child has autism spectrum disorder, and you're no doubt experiencing all kinds of emotions. Perhaps you even feel as if you're alone on an island far out in the sea, but you're not at all alone. Here at Anderson Center for Autism, we've been helping people just like you navigate those waters for nearly 100 years, and we've been giving children and adults just like the one you love what they need to shine. Our state-of-the-art education center, our nurturing residential, recreational, and community programs, and our inspiring vocational training center all bring out the best strengths, skills, and smiles in our students and residents with autism. Our belief that every person has unique talents and opportunities and the potential to enjoy a productive, purposeful future buoys up our staff, our families, and our community. And our mission to optimize the quality of life for people with autism serves as a compass guiding us along the way. At Anderson Center for Autism, we're here to help your family enjoy a rewarding journey ahead. Learn more at andersoncenterforautism.org. Welcome back to One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and I'm talking today with Joe McCleary, the academic director at the Kinney Center at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And Joe, when we just finished the, the second, the first part of the show, sorry, um, we still have a question to come back to, which is, I had asked you if, since you're, you're seeing such a high success rate, basically on par with the general population of students attending St. Joseph's University within the group of undergraduates who are identifying as being on the spectrum and are receiving some support and services through the Kinney Center, you're seeing about the same level of success, which is around 85% um, finishing all four to six years of their college experience. My question to you is, have you or any of your colleagues looked at a a longer study and following up with those graduates to see if that success and quality of life is carrying over into their lives after they graduate? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, We do know that uh, thus far with our cohort, uh, we have been able to um, place each of them in jobs or internships in their lines of work uh, that were similar to those we had for our we have for our students in other uh, in, in other uh, who are not on the spectrum, not in the program, um, and so we, you know, so we've had a 100% outcome at that initial time point. Uh, we also informally have kept in contact with many of these. Uh, you know, essentially, the social workers have kept in contact with them, um, but it's not a, in a formal way. Uh, and we are currently. I've just arrived in June, and I'm, I'm currently looking into ways to, um, to to follow up and and really query with these individuals uh, how they're doing after the long term. Um, this program has, uh, I believe it's been in place for about seven years, and it's been kind of highly active for about four, uh, four, you know, four since then. Um, and so it's still 
uh, early in the stages, but we certainly want to follow these uh, these learners up, and uh, we have other uh, researchers who would like to help us to do that as well because they find it an interesting topic, and it's an important topic, obviously, um, because we want to make sure that this really does have the long-term positive impacts. Yeah, that's cool, and I didn't realize how young the program is, so you certainly have quite a bit of time, um, but it sounds like you're off to a great start, so you know, keep us posted on, on that. Now, let's go to, to you know, we, we now, I think, myself and, and all of our listeners have a, a solid understanding of all of the people who are receiving services, or at least an overview of the people who are receiving services through the Kinney Center, both from the campus itself and also from the surrounding communities and the types of opportunities that are there. You're a researcher. You've been doing research in the field of autism for 20 years. So can you tell us a little bit about the specific research and work that you're doing now that you've arrived at Kinney? Now we're coming into maybe just about a year you've been there. Sure. So, um, again, the, the draw to me to Kinney was the clinical services. And um, I started my career looking at uh, behavioral interventions, and I moved more into neuroscience and studying, uh, you know, the brain activity of children on the spectrum. But then about seven years ago, I began to shift back, and I started to combine brain imaging with uh, intervention and then shifting completely now to mostly focusing on intervention. So... When I did this, I was in England, and uh, one of the social differences between England and Ireland and the United States is there's much more capacity and uh, openness to uh, doing research in clinical service programs, including schools. So we did some exercise research showing that we could get individuals with autism to engage in physical activity during the red period, and then we measure their stress and anxiety and their cognitive skills uh, following that. And then, so we did two studies in collaboration with a school there in England. We then did a follow-up study looking at, familiar, I'm sure, with the picture exchange communication system. Sure. Um, we used an Android-based app, but used very similar teaching protocols, uh, behavioral teaching protocols, to teach individual uh, children. Um, I believe there were six to um, six to twelve uh, who were minimally verbal. Uh, who needed an augmentative communication system and compared their intervention where they were randomly assigned to either receive a picture exchange communication system or um, an Android-based communication system and showed that they had uh, very similar outcomes, uh, mm-hmm. essentially identical outcomes. Uh, and we, So we did two studies like that in, in Ireland in collaboration with uh, Geraldine Leader uh, at the National University of Ireland in Galway. And coming back to the United States, I recognize that for me and for the field in general, there are um, challenges for the United States to, for getting access to uh, doing these kinds of manipulations in schools, um, sure. just for legal issues and practical issues. Um, so the Kinney Center was highly appealing to me because um, we have a clinical service center, and I can have influence on how we uh, integrate research into that center. So my students here at the university and I are following up on that research on um, stress and anxiety and um, executive functions or cognitive functioning, and the imp- how those improvements uh, that are created by exercise, which do exist uh, for people on and off the spectrum, how they then may have knock-on effects for social functioning. So we're looking at how social anxiety might also be reduced, uh, because if anxiety is reduced, then potentially social anxiety is reduced. So we have very specific measures of social anxiety that we're using to try to find out if that's one of the ways that exercise can help social functioning. I mentioned that um, thinking skills are improved with exercise too. Well, one of the things that we talk about is in inhibition, an executive function, and um, those are improved with exercise. Well, thinking about what someone else is thinking, thinking on someone else's perspective, uh, what they see versus what you see, 
that also involves inhibition because you have to think about their perspective by stopping thinking about your own perspective, which is inhibition. Mm. And so we think that uh, kids with autism will have better performance on theory of mind-related tasks when they uh, engage in exercise right before them. And so we're trying to figure out how our clinical programs at the Kinney Center are actually improving different aspects of functioning, including core autism symptoms like social functioning, but also associated conditions like anxiety and social anxiety, obviously, which are very common in people on the spectrum. I find this really interesting. I, I always um, exercise is one of those things that that I I think about a lot. Um, I try to engage in as much as I can. I probably think about it more. But one of the questions I would have for you then is a lot of people think about it can relate to the idea of when you when you engage in some sort of ex- activity, whether it's a walk or something more intense, um, you, you know, lifting weights playing football, I, I, like you can name anything. There is a physiological thing that happens, right? There's a there's an endorphin rush usually. There's that feeling of finishing something. And, and typically, um, or in neurotypical individuals, I think there's there's some brain activity that, that happens that you, you tend, like I, I use my own daughter as an example, and she's neurotypical, but we used to run together sometimes. And when she would finish a race, um, even if she'd complained three quarters of the way along the race, when we finished, she would always look at me and she'd say, Mom, I feel like I can do anything anything right now. <laughs> yeah. And so, and I knew that she was feeling that rush of like, not just the physicality, but also the sense of accomplishment and she was done and you know, all of that. So are you looking at long-term effects of exercise or, or like what, how, what, what people are, are reporting or what you're, you know, the, what you're tracking directly after that exercise experience, which may have more of a physiological thing. I mean, that, that, that always, I always wonder about that. Is that, are we able to see not just what happens directly after, but also if over time, just generally engaging in more exercise has long-term effects? That's an excellent question, and there's a lot of research on people without autism um, on this topic, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of debate about the, the mechanisms underlying this. But what I, So what I can tell you is that we look at both. Um, right now, uh, so in England, we looked at short-term effects within 90 minutes after finishing the exercise, mm-hmm. uh, and we also followed those individuals for several weeks. And, uh, and had them exercise regularly for several weeks. And we had very good controls for you know, counterbalancing when they got the exercise and, and, and it was a well-designed study. So we know that, that these effects were real. And what we found was that uh, cognitive like, so thinking skills and stress and anxiety were both very, very improved uh, following, uh, immediate, immediately following you know, for 90 minutes or two hours uh, following the exercise. Stress and anxiety also had long-term impacts. So this, the reduced stress and anxiety was present uh, following exercise where we tested them 24 or 48 hours after the exercise was done. The cognitive effects, we did not see as long-term impacts on those. So the, the thinking effects, the inhibition, and the attention-switching skill improvements that you see from exercise are a little bit harder you know, to, to get to have longer-lasting effects, at least in, in the populations that we studied, which included kids on the spectrum and kids in their same schools who didn't have autism but had other special education needs. Interesting. And what was the age range of the of the children that you've been working with? So those were um, 10 to 13-year-olds in, in a specialist school for kids with special education needs, which included about half of kids were, were on the spectrum and half were not. And then uh, right now we're studying 8 to 17-year-olds. Interesting. Okay. And one last follow-up question, and then I want to just ask you one more thing before we finish up. Um, did you see any differences when it came to gender? That's an excellent question, and I'll give you the same answer that most people can give you at this point in time, which is 
We don't know because most of our participants were uh, were boys. In fact, I, in that study in England, I'm not sure that we had any girls. Uh, you know, according to ratios, we should have because we had about 100 participants overall. So, you know, now thinking about it, I guess there were some girls. But I don't remember any discussion of it because usually we have just two small samples. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, how do we address this? You know, and one thing that I've been thinking about lately is trying to collapse across multiple similar studies, try to look at effects of girls versus boys when you can use data aggregated across maybe, you know, five or 10 or 15 studies that each only had, you know, a handful of girls, if, if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a huge problem, and uh, our field is trying to address it, um, but it's a really complicated problem, and we need to, you know, finally the field is putting resources toward this. Okay. Um, uh, off the top of my head, I can't answer that question. I would love to now go back <laughs> and look at the data and see how many girls we had in the study and, and whether their effects you know, at least even eyeballing them uh, potentially later statistically uh, were different or similar to the boys. Yeah. Um, the last thing I'll say about that is that, you know, there's no uh, evidence that I know of of gender effects uh, in exercise impacts in the general population. There's a lot of research on that. So okay. I would hope that it would not be different for the girls yeah. and for the boys, but it could be. Well, that would that you know, I I would agree with that. Um, I, with that with that same desired outcome. But so we're out of time. But Joe McCleary from uh, the Kinney Center at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, this is phenomenal work that's going on. I really appreciate your your spending the time with us today, telling us all about what's going on at the Kinney Center for so many people, for about eight hundred individuals and families coming through the doors every year. Um, I do hope that you find an opportunity to continue to collaborate with other universities and and uh, that we continue to see. Uh, more successful long-term outcomes for people going to college and making that commitment. And and I'm thrilled to to know more about what you're doing. So thank you for being on the show. And thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. This is 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski. And remember, Anderson cares. You've been listening to 1 in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. Join us for another edition of the show at the same time next week. 